0: <laughs> welcome to Reputation Town. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Reputation Town. I'm Warren Weeks, and I'm joined by my friend and colleague, John Paranak, where we talk about media relations, public relations, anything relating to reputation management, and some uh, pretty random, unpredictable stuff along the way. John, how are you doing today?
1: Good, Warren. Good, Warren. Glad to be back at this, talking about some interesting stuff. And it looks like there's possibly
0: a light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. Things are starting to, I guess, feel like they're opening up a little bit, although uh, I sent a note to the, the lady who cuts my hair, and she's like, dude, you're not getting in here for a long time. Like they're not even open yet. And she said, we're going to be doing dye jobs for, for six months. So I might have to <laughs> order one of those flow B things off the internet. You know, that vacuum that cuts your hair. I do. So
1: I do. That, that's a good, that's a good test to see how old you are too. If you remember the flow B commercials, <laughs> there's no
0: doubt that we're both uh, quite, quite old at this point. Um, any off topic stuff you want to bring up?
1: Other than other than the light of, at the end of that tunnel was just like crushed out by the god-awful performance of the uh, Leafs. You and I were commenting about how we were so optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wait a second, let's just crush that optimism uh, and, and dispense with it entirely. How
0: things have changed. I think it was two episodes ago we were actually predicting they were going to win the Stanley Cup and though it's too bad they can't have a parade. I took some heat from uh, Dennis. He sent me a couple of notes. He saw, I heard you guys chirping that the Leafs were going to win. so. <laughs> yeah we have to uh you know we make predictions here some of them and I think maybe we should just stick to the predictions in the media relations realm and not uh, not so much sports but like such a f- such a familiar feeling just when they just at the end when it just like you get this little hope and like and you know you shouldn't don't get hope because that's they always disappoint you and then it, it happened and so
1: that's right but hey you know what uh, prediction wise you get what you pay
0: for so <laughs> <laughs> valid this is, uh, yeah, so far it's, it's a free podcast. Um, anything else you want to bring up or do you want to jump into the, uh, into the reputation stuff?
1: I uh, know let's, let's jump in. Okay. So
0: the first one that I wanted to, to bring up today is this, uh, this tennis player, uh, Naomi Osaka, biggest story going on right now kind of in the sports world. And everybody's chiming in with an opinion on this. And, uh, I can't imagine there are people out there who don't know the story, but she's competing in the French open and has said that she didn't want to do any of the media availabilities or press conferences um, stating like kind of citing mental health issues and anxiety it gives her a lot of anxiety. Speak to the press. You know, she's a young, young woman and uh, the organizers said that they were going to find her $15,000 per um, incident. And, and that went on for a little while and then it became kind of a pissing match between her and the organizers because I don't know if you know this, but she's the highest paid f- female athlete in the world. Did you know that?
1: No, I didn't know I, that. I had I read no idea that
0: today. I was blown away. Like Nike alone pays her $10 million a year. And so for her, she's like, no problem. she will cut them a check and she'll avoid these things. And then, um, Things escalated, and then she ends up pulling out of the tournament. You know, you have this this star athlete who basically pulls out, and now has polarized everybody with this this issue. And uh, from a so it's still it's still happening now, and you're seeing other athletes. I think Lewis Hamilton was the last one today chiming in and supporting her and mental health, and we need to do more, and the media is terrible, and and all this kind of stuff. So wanted to know right off the bat when you hear the story and you hear what's going on, what what's your thoughts?
1: my immediate thought was like, I didn't know much about her. I don't really follow tennis that closely. So, you know, take, take whatever I have with a grain of But I my immediate thought was um, like the fact that the tournament, like their, their mechanism for dealing with this is just to fine people. It seems like it's a pretty blunt instrument. And my immediate thought was this, this is a, like a, a obviously an issue management uh, mechanism in place that doesn't really work terrifically well. Um, I think I think you know you can use those kinds of blunt instruments when you have a closed system, like maybe in a I you know, for example, in a unionized environment, often unions there's like in a collective bargaining agreement, there's certain penalties built in if things things happen or don't happen. But I just thought that the, the, the tournament itself was was pretty ham fisted in the way it uh the way it managed it. And and um it was only after I started reading more about it that I started to appreciate um, uh, sort of the the amount of spotlight that was put on her. And, you know, I, I kind of sympathize that, um, you know, not, not everyone needs to subject themselves to that, uh, that kind of scrutiny. And so, you know, the fact that she decided to pull out and, and leave the tournament, um, I, I, it certainly didn't criticize criticize her for it. I felt like, you know, individuals have to make their own choices, but it seems like a real no win situation.
0: Like the tournament organizers look like bullies. She doesn't get to compete yeah. in this event that she might've gone, gone on to win. Who knows? And uh, there's just a, a bad taste. kind of all around, you know, every, I don't think anybody wins from this. Like, obviously she's a huge topic of discussion and people say there's no such thing as bad PR, but like, I don't know if this is the reason you want to be in the spotlight.
1: Agreed. Agreed. And you know, at the end of the day, she, she, you know, just deconstructing it from a reputational standpoint, she maintains the higher ground. Because, as you just pointed out, the, the tournament looks like the bully, she looks like the victim. um, And, um, and so she, she comes out of this uh, with the upper hand. But you're right, in, in a sense, you know, it's not good for the sport. It's not good for the tournament overall in terms of its long-term reputation never mind what it does in the short term for this for this year's competition and it just speaks to i gotta go back to the the mechanism that they had to deal with this was a pretty blunt instrument and and maybe it's something that's it's worked that way for all these years and has never been an issue but maybe this is one of those situations where it's time to to take a second look at things and modernize it and and um take a more nuanced approach to dealing with these situations. And at the end of the day, like I can understand why a tournament wants their athletes, the athletes competing in it to do media interviews and, um and, you know, do those like, they're really just kind of like um, um, scrum type things where you've got all the journalists and they ask questions, even though it's in an orderly fashion, it's, it's a, it's like a big news conference, uh, so the journalists subject themselves to those news conferences and, and participate in them. And, you know, maybe that's not, maybe that's, maybe that sort of one size fits all approach. Isn't what the tournament has to do now. Maybe they have to sure athletes need to do media, but maybe you provide it a, in a, some different formats, different ways so that uh, can accommodate people. Maybe
0: I'm a blunt instrument here, but like, I, I can't help but look at the story and feel like I could help this, this woman. I'm um, you well, oh for when sure. you think about it and, and you know maybe like you know media training you see if you're if you're a hammer you see everything as a nail, right? And maybe it's it's not that simple and I'm sure they have access to this. But you know, you and I both know that um just because someone says they're a media trainer doesn't mean they're a very good one. And there's huge mm-hmm. varieties of of kind of skill and quality within that. But I just to me it's like you're you're at the pinnacle of this sport, and you know, tennis is one of those brutal like you're out there by yourself. Um, I used to watch it way back in the day. I was an Andre Agassi fan, and uh, just it's such a lonely sport. Whether you're whether you're doing well or whether you're not, it's not like you have a team or a goalie to blame, um, something like that. And I just it seems that it would be exponentially more difficult to become a great tennis player than it would be to figure out how to do media interviews. In that control, and, and let's face it, most of these press conferences, when it comes to sports, they're terrible. Like they ask the same questions. There's that whole thing <laughs> in Bull Durham, right? You know, 110 percent, one game at a time, yeah. and, and so a lot of them are like that. And I know she did have that very um, unpleasant experience. I don't know if you saw with uh, with um, she had the match with Williams, and the crowd was booing her, and she's like crying. Like you, you feel horrible for this. But you know, anyone who's had anxiety or issues like that knows how crippling it can be. But I'm wondering and I, I have no inside knowledge of this obviously but is there some role like who who's handling her um I mean, before we got uh got on here today I went on her website and actually <laughs> tried to send in a thing in her in her contact form for, for her press inquiries and it's some um, management agency in like Tokyo or something but basically saying like look let's set up a zoom call like I think it just to me it is it, there's this line from Jerry Maguire, and this might sound harsh, but it's not show friends, it's show business. And if you, if you mm. want to be, if you want to accept the, the, the fruits of this, of, uh, of being this elite athlete, I don't know, like the, to me, is that the thing? Is that the stumbling block meeting with the media? Um, and, and I appreciate the, the anxiety element of that, but I feel that To me, if you can follow all the rules of tennis, you know, you have to hit the ball here. You can't do this. You can't do that. It just, to me, it's you tack on another one and you add that skill set. Maybe I'm simplifying this, but I just, um, I don't know. I feel like a couple hours in a room with this person and either one of us could, could help her out.
1: Well, that's a good point. And, you know, I think that's the difference between amateur sports and professional sports is that when you're an amateur athlete, you can just focus on the game, um, both the mental and physical aspects of it when you're in professional sports it's sure it's both those things but it's also i think as you just said it's the the show business component of it there's there's to succeed in it you almost have to be um as as astute in managing public relations as you are in what you're doing on the uh, on the court in this case um and you know at the end of the day maybe not everyone's cut out for that And the reality is, though, is that to be ultimately successful on that kind of elite stage, you you do have to do both.
0: There's another argument that could say, like, you know, I I see this moment. If I try to project where is this going to go? It's hard to tell. And obviously, we just talked about one of our horrible predictions 10 minutes ago. but. Is this is this the first brick that they they're taking out of the wall of of press conferences and, and availabilities like this? You know, the media has been eroding in terms of its size and 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 influence over the last you know couple of decades. The the rise of social media, you know, one could argue if she has the ability to to go online and answer questions from fans for an hour, why is that less important than doing a media availability? And I'm wondering if this is going to be the beginning of a movement, and more athletes because it's basically a power struggle, right? And she has what you would call "fu" money at this point. I, I think that I, I saw somewhere that her, you know, th- those net worth calculator thing. Who knows how accurate they are, but they said it's in the fifty million dollars range, and so mm-hmm. she she doesn't need to to um, to bow down to any of these these organizers. I'm wondering is this the beginning of a trend where more athletes start doing this, and maybe. And we talked about the quality of these press conferences. They're they're usually not that great. The questions are the routine, the same the same old questions. And I think one of the issues she was talking about specifically was she would, she doesn't want someone rattling her confidence. Like they would ask her these questions that kind of plant little seeds of doubt in your mind. She's like, I'm not going to put myself, I'm not going to subject myself to that. And so you have some reporters who can be kind of dickish in that way. And so. I, I can't help but wonder a year from now, two years from now, if we're going to see more people jumping on this bandwagon and it becomes this wave. And eventually we figure out a new way to do this or uh, they have to rethink it because it's basically the same old, um, the same old process they've had for you know 50 years. You know, you get you get together I, with the microphones, you answer some questions and, and they're usually terrible questions.
1: So I I think this is already happening, right? I think this is happening in the tech space. And I think, like, I know I personally encourage a lot of clients to do this when it comes to getting a message out. You have so much ability to control a message on your own, on platforms, and through conduits you have full control over that work parallel to the traditional media that it is critical you take advantage of them. So a great example of this is Coinbase. Um, The people are familiar yeah. with it. it's a cryptocurrency company mm-hmm. went public recently um in in the u.s they made the choice that look we are just we are just going to take an approach where we're going to go direct to our audience we're we're going to uh, you know engage with media when appropriate but that's not going to be our primary form of communication we're going to use our platform uh, a blog they set up to fact check articles. They're going to use it as a, a mechanism to deliver communications directly to the stakeholders they think are important. And they got a, you know, they did a blog post. Uh, what date is this? Um, May 26th, where they just talk about how the, you know, these are the criteria we're going to do it under. These are the principles we're going to, we're going to follow. And here's how we're going to, we're going to manage the conversation going forward. So in, in a sense, you know, we're going to bypass the media entirely. And I wonder if at some point, um, you know, a lot of these, these uh, elite athletes, if they don't just do the same thing, if they are, if they aren't already, the, the, I guess the point of tension is, is that if you are, that's fine for the athlete, but if you are the competition, you have an interest in feeding the traditional media and making sure that traditional media has access to your athletes. So, um, she, uh, the, the is important to still maintain some connectivity there. So I think this is still evolving, but you can see seeds of this starting already. Mm -hmm. Interesting
0: to watch. Um, it's, you know, uh, again, I I feel like it's a a no win situation right now. And, um, I think partly to blame are the, are the journalists, frankly, you know, one of my mantras is that, you know, the media is not out to get you. And I believe that most of them aren't, but you know, one or two bad interactions, especially when you're so young and in those formative years can have, can have a huge impact. So I think there's some onus on journalists to try, try to, you know, if you're going to ask an athlete questions, invest some time in, in asking them good questions and don't be, don't be kind yeah. of a dick just to, to try to get under the skin, which is not, not cool.
1: I agree completely. Okay. What's up uh, on deck next? So so one of the things that I found also interesting, this is more of an internal communications uh, approach is, so one of the, the companies I think is, is a, well, to say they're a bit of a secret is, you know, they're a secret among, I think the broad public, but uh, among people who follow tech and business, I don't think they're, they're a secret at all, uh, is one of the great Canadian success stories in recent years is Shopify. And Warren, you've done work with them before in, yeah. in the past. Um, but, their CEO Toby Lutke, he did a communication recently internally and I thought it was really interesting and I wanted to just talk about it from a from an internal communication standpoint the, the I'll just cut to the chase here you know he I think this was in the context of you know looking at how the company is going to manage going forward the expectations of it as um, an entity that um Comments on issues of social justice and those sorts of things, and you know he said, he sent out this very extensive internal communication that's been talked about a lot publicly. He said he said a couple of things. The first thing he said was, "It should be massively obvious to Shopify that we're not a family." But I see people, even leaders, usually ca- casually use terms like Shopify, which cause the members of our teams, especially junior ones that have never worked anywhere before, to get the wrong impression. And he goes on to say that Shopify. Like any other for-profit company, is not a family. The very idea is preposterous. You are born into a family; you never choose it. They can't unfamily you. And he makes the point that you know we're we're for, for for-profit business. We're we're all pushing pulling in the same direction. And it's important that we we don't fall into this sort of mindset that we are something we're not. Um, when it comes to the issues of social justice, like the company itself when it comes to environment and in um, other things, you know, takes actions, has programs and philanthropical mm-hmm. things. It does that make it clear where their priorities are, where their values are, but it's not going to, it's not going to um, become a, um, I guess an organ of, of part of this discussion online with the, the social justice issues just come up. And he, he says, you know, we're also not the government. We can't solve every societal problem. Uh, we are part of the ecosystem, of course, and um, uh, we can play a, a play a role in, in helping address some of these things through what we do. But we got to be careful that we're not um, uh, overreaching uh, when it comes to the demands or the expectation that uh, a company like ours engages in these things. And that was an interesting line to draw because. You know, this more and more, I think, employees look at companies and say, you know, I, I expect our company to be active on this issue or that issue because it happens to become, you know, d- debated and discussed in the news. And it was actually interesting to see, you know, a company like this saying, no, no, no we can draw a line. It doesn't mean we're not going to be blind to all these things entirely, but it means that um, we're going to we're going to remember that we're a company first we're focused on excellence, professionalism, and delivering against our business goals. And let's not forget that. Um, this is not an approach you, you necessarily see a lot of companies take. I can recall situations in the past that I've been in where I've seen, I've seen companies or, or um, people I've worked with give advice to companies where, you know, avoiding controversy at all costs in this case, Let's let's succumb to the idea that we need to comment on everything to avoid controversy, is is where 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 your line should be. And I personally don't subscribe to that. And I th- thought it was interesting to see Lutke uh, say that in this email as well to employees. I'm not sure if you saw it, Warren. If you had any thoughts on it,
0: I did see it. Uh, I don't know if you're aware that that email is actually from last August. Oh, is it? Yeah. They, but th- so it was from last August that he sent it out. And if you remember what was going on last summer with all the you know the George Floyd stuff and everything else. Yeah, and the pandemic and everyone being locked down. But my understanding is that the email was written and sent out last August and that someone leaked it to Business Insider recently. And that's why it was, uh, that's why, oh, that's why okay. it was posted. Interesting. But it doesn't take away from the the sentiment of it, but just, you know, I, and I, I I have done some work with the company um, for, on a media training front. And I did get to actually work with, uh, with Toby for a day. Very, very special guy, just operating on a completely other level. And um, to see that note is not... Um, Not surprising. And and, you know, I don't think, you know, some people think it's kind of comes off as mean. I don't I don't see that at all. He's um, ultimately speaking out against woke capitalism, right? Saying like, you know, like you said, we're not the government. We're, We're not here to to take care of all your needs. But that's, you know, I think people who think that that's the case, that's where the mistake is being made. And considering, he's like, look, if we're a family, that makes it more difficult to get rid of someone who isn't performing. And one of the quotes that really stood out to me from that email was, we literally only want the best people in the world. And that's that's a that's a crazy quote. You don't hear a lot of companies talk like that. Or, you know, even if they are, they, have, they probably don't have the ability to attract and retain the best people in the world. This is a company that... Um, you know, for anyone who, you know, in Canada, it's a huge success story. A lot of people in the States probably are not aware of it. But uh, this is this to me, they're, they're building a hundred year company here. This is not uh, a flash in the pan. And you can see that they are in direct competition with Amazon where, you know, you have Amazon, this just gigantic company with a several decade head start on them. But, um, you know, what Amazon does is they go, and it's amazing that you can order something and it shows up on your doorstep 24 hours later. Like, that's that's bonkers. But at the same time, I don't know if you've, you've probably heard about it. Like you're the guy who put me on Amazon Prime uh, a number of years back. but you know, let's say, did you know that Amazon is the biggest supplier of batteries now in the world to the public? Mm -hmm. And so like what happens is someone will sell a product on Amazon. Amazon will look at the, the metrics of those products and then they will basically copy those products, sell them cheaper and then block those merchants from selling on their platform. And Shopify is doing the exact opposite. They're actually, they call it arming the rebels. And so they are, and, um, I, I have become a Shopify merchant in this past year. You know, I put that course together and I had to figure out all the sort of e-commerce stuff. And it's an amazing, amazing platform. And uh, so the note was not surprising. And, you know, I have I have to think that, you know, he's not going to send that out without thinking that it's probably going to get leaked to the media. I don't think any CEO today If you're going to put it together, you know, one of those kind of Jerry Maguire mission statements and send it out to your team, I have to, you have to assume that it's going to end up in the hands of a journalist. And so, um, I'm sure that that was partly like, I don't think he was doing it because of that, but I think you have to assume that that's going to be the case. But, um, It really helps draw that line because, you know, you you see these little and I've been out of the corporate world, but, you know, I know a lot of people who are in it and you see these little pods of people and they have these little echo chambers, these little woke echo chambers where they start complaining about this and that and they can become these little infectious things in your company. And he came out in a very clear, um, but I thought in a really rational way and kind of shut that down. So I thought that it was a great email.
1: I thought so, too. And, you know, if I boil it down, it's, it's this idea. to be successful on this level, it's about striving for excellence at all times and all things. Like even this sounds ridiculous, but even in the most marginal parts of the business, we are going to try and do the best job possible and strive for excellence. I don't care if it is cleaning the lunchroom. Like it is going to be, it's going to like excellence from top to bottom, as opposed to leading by trying to avoid, um, avoid, avoid, upsetting everyone or anyone, right? This idea that we have to be, you know, good management is about, um, avoiding any kind of controversy or avoiding any kind of, uh, situation where we might, might not, um, uh, we may do something that may not align with the people's expectations. If we have high expectations, we have to hold them across the organization. And I think, you know, this is, this is kind of refreshing from a communication standpoint to see someone taking this clear line, um, at the end of the day, that's what what great communication starts from simple ideas that are communicated really clearly, and I think he's done that in this case. There's another line from that email where he says, "We also
0: can't take care of all your needs," and he's talking to his employees here, but we will try our best to take care of the ones that ensure you can support our mission. So I don't know if they still do this, and I'm not sure if you're aware, but one of the things Shopify would do for employees is they would pay to have your 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 living space clean, like they would have like. Um, like cleaning service, go in to clean your house or your apartment or your condo or whatever. And it's this little perk, but the, the thinking was that that directly contributes to like, that's time you don't have to spend. It's a worry you don't have, you can be more productive Mm -hmm. at your job. And so this wasn't just like having a foosball table in the, the lunchroom. This was how, how do we make it scalable across the organization that our people have more time and how can we, we do this thing? So it's not just um, something that they're just this gratuitous thing that they're throwing out there. This to them supports their mission. And there that was a ties
1: back strategically. Yeah.
0: And there's another reference yeah. in there where he said every single person in this company should be able to articulate how they're helping us in our mission, no matter what their role is. Kind of to the quote that you mentioned before. Um, it's so it's it's. Uh, not the first that we've seen from him like this. And the guy, I don't, I don't even know if he's 40 years old yet. So he's got many years ahead of him to keep doing this, but he hes a, a very original thinker, great leader. And, uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of this kind of stuff from Shopify down the road. I agree. Um, now you, you have this obsession with the Royal family. You wanted to talk about them again, I believe.
1: Well, so it's, the, well, <laughs> I suppose you have to keep going back to them. But uh, I, t- I talked about it, it just highlighted it uh, an episode ago I think, where just rewind, so go back to 1995. Um, I, you know, I think it's it's hard to find a media personality that exists today like uh, Princess mm-hmm. Diana, but at the time she gave this huge television interview with this journalist Martin Bashir, and. Details of that don't really matter, but it was a big deal. It captured, you know, the attention of the world, uh, and really was was um, a reputational issue for the royal family for sure. But the thing about it I wanted to talk about was this revelation that's come out just recently in the past few months that that journalist um, Martin Bashir, in order to get that interview, he f- fabricated bank statements that made it look like the um, uh, allies or, you know, associates of the Royal family were paying uh, private uh, investigators to follow her around. And he used those as the sort of catalyst to get a conversation with her eventually, and then turn that into an interview. And from a, from a, journalist uh, journalism standpoint I thought it was interesting to talk about for a couple of reasons first uh, off you know like I don't know Warren, you went to journalism school I, d- I don't think you know <laughs> fabricating documents is is one of the one of the, the course courses <laughs> you learn in journalism school um, but it reflects really poorly on the profession generally that um, a journalist would go through and do something like this and and it's the sort of thing where, especially in a time when journalism is under such, you know, it's not not really a high high point in journalism in terms of the pressures it's under and the whole news media, the way it's changing. But uh, this is the sort of thing that can ref, can reflect poorly poorly on everyone, and it's just not something that is helpful for the uh, industry overall. And I think it also it, um, uh, makes people more shy and weary of talking to journalists. And, you know, despite the fact we made comments earlier about how, you know, using other platforms and using other avenues is a good way to get your message out. I also think engaging with the media is a way you shouldn't abandon entirely either. And if it makes people like wary or, or skeptical of talking to journalists because of the stuff they see like this, it's just, it's just not helpful overall and uh, I don't know where this is going to go and uh, whether it might be just sort of one of these Tempest in a teapot things. And, yeah, it's in the UK and we never hear from it again. But I think for, for the profession, it's it's another sort of black eye. And I think the fact that uh, Brashear is sort of defending his his actions as well, it doesn't really matter because it was just, uh, you know, a little footnote on the way to getting to this interview um, is just, it it just shows that I don't think he has, um, uh, the, the best of ethics in in his profession.
0: That's putting it mildly. That's a very slimy tactic. And it seems like one of those things that um, you know, and you, you see these things from time to time. I forget the, there was the name of a reporter at the New York Times where it was discovered that he had basically faked, you know, 80 percent of his articles or something. He was just like making up quotes from people. And so, yeah, there's there's definitely a thing called journalism ethics. A lot of people say, oh, well, that's an oxymoron and journalists aren't. But like there are so many out there who are trying to do a good job. And it takes one of these pinheads to um to give the, the, the profession a bad name because these are the ones that stand out. But to me, to fake documents like this, to and that interview, you could argue that that, that interview changed the course of her life, not for the better. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I'm not a huge fan of the royal family, but the way that that, that uh, interview was orchestrated, to me looks like someone who is just trying to do that for personal gain. He's like, how can mm-hmm. I game this system so that I can become the the spotlight or, and I, I don't, i I've tried to find this guy on social media, tried to find him on LinkedIn, Tried to find him on Twitter does not exist. So I don't know what he's doing these days or how he's making his money, but he appears to be out of the game and he has no public profile that I
1: could find anyway. Well, I think, you know, he, he, he was rehired by bbc recently and that's where this really came in they came under scrutiny and so you know whatever they're gonna to have to answer for 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 their their own standards on on rehiring a guy like that in the midst of doing stuff like this but i think i think you know just another example of how you know this that this profession is under real strain and um this kind of activity is certainly not helping you know uh this actually takes me to something I thought was interesting that you were talking about on LinkedIn this past week, which is, is from time to time when you do an interview or, or stories written about your organization, there's going to be mistakes, you know? And I think, I think part of that is because, you know, in in a media environment where journalists are, you know, working harder than ever, they're asked to do more and more in terms of not only just writing things, but, you know, also being social media experts sometimes journalists are expected to do to do video on top of everything else with their stories they're writing so there's increasing demands there's fewer and fewer of them and um sometimes that means that or often that means that the journalist who's covering a story isn't an expert in that area they're they're learning about it for the first time maybe that morning and mistakes can happen so you so that means that articles are going to have errors in them sometimes. And the question you posed was, should you be asking for a correction for a media story? So I thought it was really interesting advice to people. And so maybe, maybe start by just talking just generally about the idea of, of asking for a correction and how, how like what, what are some of the, 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 things you need to think about if, if you're going to, if you're going to do that.
0: So this is a really loaded question and, Uh, It's one that I've brought up over the years, and it's always been because, and and, you know, we've been in this business many, many years, right? Like more than a quarter of a century each. And so you've seen the situations pop up and you see how they kind of get resolved. And, and I think a lot of it stems from the fact that a lot of individuals and a lot of people actually in public relations who kind of think they know how the media works, but then they think they're going to kind of handle it. or They're going to like, they're going to manage the media and be like, kind of like strong arm them or put them in a headlock. And like, to me, you know, it's, you know, we, we make our livings dealing with the media and, you know, I have family members. I've been a part of the media myself. I, I respect that profession in, in a way that to me, it seems like kind of like a tiger in a cage. Um, anytime. And I don't mean this in a, in a negative way, but you need to respect that power. Uh, it reminds you of like Siegfried and Roy, what was the, who's the one that got eaten or bitten by the tiger? Like you always have to be on alert. And, um, so I have a whole bunch of thoughts swirling around about this, but, but. Over the years, we you know working in agencies, I would see uh, clients who would be very you know there'd be one little piece of an article that they didn't like, or in one case, this is back in the '90s, but there was a company that from from out west, and yeah, I won't mention their name, but I think it was a tech company, and they someone at the 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 agency that I was working at secured this great feature story for them, and the the name of the company the way that they had uh, articulated their name from their branding standpoint was in all capitals. And so just take any random kind of nebulous word for the name of your company and they just it was in all capitals. So if you saw their, their sign on their building or their website or their business cards, it was all capitals. And so... They get this glowing article, and I think it was the Calgary Herald. Like, just you know, big picture of the founders and story, and here's what we're doing, and like, this is the kind of story that you you dream of getting for a client. Like, it might happen like once every couple of years, and they mentioned the company name, but they just had it in like you know, like uh, the, the, the the first letter was capitalized and the rest was lowercase, and the founders lost their shit. They couldn't like they. They couldn't see the forest for the trees and like, we have to go back. We have to get them to re- redo the story, issue a correction because it wasn't in capital letters. And these are these are smart people. These are seasoned executives, smart people. And I'm just shaking my head. And I think eventually they were they were talked off the ledge in, in a way to say, look, you know, you really have to pick your battles a little more carefully. That's a really ridiculous example of one. But my, my philosophy on, on corrections is, first of all, even if you get one it's going to be on page 92 and no one's going to remember the original reference. So make every effort that you can to get it right the first time. Um, So if there's any clarification or if you're, you're dealing with a journalist and you can even ask them like, look, do you have any questions about any of the stuff that I mentioned? If you're dealing with a trade publication, they will often send you your quotes to review a mainstream outlet would never do that. But you know, if you're working with a trade publication, they'll send you your quotes. You can look at them, spot some things you need to correct. You can do that. Um, But, Try to get it right the first time. Now, if there is a factual error, um, one of the things that I've done in the past couple of years now, there might be a printed version of a newspaper that goes out. You're not going to be able to change that, but you can make a change to the version that's on their website, right? And so it comes down to being polite and sending an email to the journalist. And the way that I would recommend people do it is you don't basically attack them and saying, you know, you got this thing wrong. We demand a correction. You want to appeal to their sense of accuracy because journalists... Again, on the whole, they want to get things right. And so you would send a quick note saying, you know, I noticed that story that you wrote about such and such. You know, obviously, if you're representing your organization or a client, um, just wanted to let you know that, you know, in paragraph five, line two, you refer to this. Technically, it's that's um, not accurate. The accurate number or figure or name or whatever is this just thought you'd want to know. Um, If there's an opportunity to fix this on your website, just in the spirit of accuracy, blah, blah, blah. And you'll see that like 90% of those work and they end up changing it. And it's a, it's, you know, a a small win, but I've seen way more of these things. And, you know, I have a sister who is uh, a reporter at the Globe and Mail. She's a health reporter. She's been there like 12 or 13 years now. And I get stories from her all the time about people who, like people in this business, people in the public relations, media relations, who think they're going to handle the media. And so there was one—I forget the exact the exact circumstances—and it's probably better that I that I can't remember it. But there was one where um, this this technology company—I think they it was something about like some new kind of X rays or something like this. This company was trying to create some buzz, and so they'd hired a. Um, a small um, public relations firm to kind of pitch this story, and so um, my sister ends up getting this pitch about this new technology that's going to be able to um, detect cancer before, like, sooner than any other technology that's out there in the marketplace. And she's thinking, "Well, this is true. This this is this is amazing." And so she sets up a call and they start having some discussions with them. And then um, you know, so the company's looking for just a promotional, like, an advertisement from from the newspaper. But she does her due diligence and she talks to a bunch of different people and she writes an article about this technology that wasn't exactly flattering. It was like, look, here's what they're claiming, here's what some other people say. She talked to like two or three people, like which, which is what you're supposed to do. And uh-huh. um, the 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 PR person for the company, not not the the the, the CEO, but the PR person, flips out. And starts, uh, and my sister is, you know, showing me some of these emails. Starts attacking my sister and the Globe and Mail about I can't believe you wrote the story and like blah blah blah. This is, this is outrageous. And we demand this. We demand that. They wanted corrections and retractions. And so, and and she, this is and this is where the tiger reference comes in. Because then um, Carly says, "Okay, yeah, you want you want to you want to play," and then she starts digging into the company and the founders and the technology, and so nothing was as rosy and as amazing as the company was letting as making it out to be. And the fact that they came back and were demanding corrections and trying to bully the journalist actually made her burrow nine levels deeper, which ended up in 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 more coverage that was accurate, but the company didn't want, and so. To me, those those are the things that, that can happen, right? Like, what's the upside? What's the downside? And even if you get that correction, most people are not going to see it. So I, I know I was kind of like rambling in a kind of circuitous route there, but I think uh, asking for a correction needs to be handled very carefully and done on a very sporadic basis. Do everything you can to get it right the first time.
1: So, so I think, let's do, a, I want to do a rapid fire with you. So here's, here's some different scenarios and I want to know, you know, if you should get a, if you should ask for a correction, and if so, how how might you go about it? Mm-hmm. Okay, so maybe this is is too easy, and you've kind of covered this, but okay, they 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 published the name of the company wrong in the in the article. Yeah, what do you do? Let, in let that it go. Case? Let it
0: go. Um, you know, I might if, if I might if it's if it's a newspaper, let's say, I would do just what I talked about. I would send a quick note to maybe get it right in the online version of it, and then. Um, just, you know, dust yourself off and try to do better next time. Or maybe just recap something on social media. Um, but if you get the online version fixed, I think that's all you need in that situation.
1: All right. So in, another scenario is the spokesperson, um, they misspoke in, in in giving one of their answers and there's some facts wrong in, in what they provided to the journalist. And that ends up in the story.
0: Um, like, what do you mean they misspoke? Like they they were like, Intentionally lying, or they just made some. No, mistakes? no, no.
1: They they like got their numbers mixed up. Let's say, yeah. and um, yeah, in the context of the interview, they were nervous or something, and and so the the the, the quote that uh, or like a contextual piece in the story is 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 wrong because of that. Mm. So I keep I keep going back
0: to like during the interview, right? If you're in the middle of the interview and you realize that you've said something wrong. Right at the end, you should just like just before we go, I, I believe that I said million. I actually meant billion or whatever the reference would be. And so like to me, this is 95 percent trying to fix it at the time. Now, if it happens that the and I guess it depends to me on how serious the the mistake is, is it a decimal place or is it a huge number? Does it have material uh, implications? Is this a publicly traded company? Right. Like those are all questions that come to mind. You know, if I if I did an interview like that, I'm like a one person company, basically. So if I did an interview like that and that mistake came out, that would be on me and I would probably just let it go. Maybe correct something on Twitter. You know, you might have seen this article out there today. Here's the number. Here's the number it actually should be. Um, But if it's something uh, with with a large company that this is going to have a material impact on their financial uh, reporting or something like that, then I would probably go back to the reporter and, and request one
1: so story appears and in this scenario the um, there's there's a there's a third party that said something uh, as the journalist was was doing their due diligence around the the story third party has said something and and what the third party is saying is is wrong they've got the wrong data you can you can show that the that the data is different um, do you go back to the journalist in that case so this is one that, that it- the the quote that
0: comes to mind for me is that the only part you have control over in an interview is what's between the quotes that are attributed to you. So you don't get to write the headline, you don't get to write the intro, and the journalist may and I just reference this with uh, with with my sister. She'll talk to two or three different people for a story. You don't get to influence what those other individuals are going to say, and so from time to time, you will see, and this happens all the time, you'll see, you know, they'll ask someone from management and they'll ask someone from the union and they might have very differing opinions. And and that's one of the reasons that you do that. But, you know, if the person's information from this third party is just completely inaccurate, um, again, it doesn't, to me, as long as I got my quotes right and I'm happy with those, that's kind of a win. And it, again, it depends on the seriousness of what they said, was it a, was it a minor thing or was it a major thing? That would probably f- play into my decision of how I'm going to handle that. Um, I think today I would be more likely to um, speak directly to my audience, whether it's through an email list, whether it's through um, you know whatever your big social media platform is. You know, some organizations this is going to be Facebook, for other ones it's going to be LinkedIn or Twitter. I would probably go directly to my audience and clarify it with them if it was just nuclear sized mistake, then of course I would have to try to go back to the journalist and maybe instead of getting a correction, I might even just try to get a follow-up story um, or have a discussion with them, um, something along those lines. But I think there there are some options, but ultimately the only thing you have control over is what's between the quotes that are attributed to you.
1: All right, and last last one, this may be, a, you've already, you may have already answered this, but mm-hmm. journalist has a quote, precisely just as you delivered it but you're really unhappy with the tone of the of the article around the quote um and 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 you know the as a company you're upset that that um it it just doesn't just doesn't you you don't feel it aligns with with the the facts that you feel like are, are true um CEO is pressing you to, to, to go get that fixed because it doesn't look good for us. And I think that I think that's maybe the example you gave with Car, with Carly, but what do you do in that situation?
0: Yeah. Um, this is where you will often hear people say I was taken out of context or, you know, they were out to get us. There was a hatchet piece and not necessarily the case. I think people are very thin skinned when it comes to their media coverage because there's so much scrutiny and ego and all those other elements around it. And so, you you know, if, if the quote was, was accurate, that's, that's one thing, right? Like that's something that you actually said, if you're not happy with the quote, that's, that's kind of on you. The, the larger piece, I think, I think it, it refers back to the story I, I talked about that medical technology company where um, you don't get to, like, if you want to be in control of it, buy an ad, you know, go on Facebook and buy an ad, create a video or do a little write up, and just put everything you want in there and get your visa card out or your mastercard. And and throw it up on the Internet. But when you're dealing with journalists, you're not going to have control over the tone. And and, you know, this might sound kind of preachy, but I would go back and say, look, something didn't work along the way. Either us assessing this as a media opportunity, because you don't have to say yes to all of them. And if this if this was something that you proactively created you know you have to go through the steps like you can influence the tone of the story based on the information that you give and the stories and the the analogies and the anecdotes you know you have direct control over your quotes but you can actually influence some of those other things by having a great interview and so you know just when you see examples of horrible interviews and amazing interviews you see what a gulf there is between those two um, those two individuals like did you see uh did you see the founder of uh, Paramount Fine Foods the other day when that restaurant burned down? Did you see the interview that he did? No, I didn't see that. So it's on my uh, it's on my Twitter page. It's like a couple. It's probably a couple days down by now. But um, this this is this is an individual who. Have you ever eaten there before? Uh, yeah, I have. It's a great food. They're on. Uh, they have one on on Applebee near near us, and um, so he has been on my radar over the past year and a half because he's been doing a lot of work helping to feed, you know, less fortunate people during the pandemic and he's been a great spokesperson for the hospitality industry and the restaurant industry. Obviously, he's done very well, but he's a very hard-working guy and seems to be like a legitimately just a genuine great dude. And so there's this horrible fire at one of their flagship, like one maybe their first or one of their first locations, just destroys the place. And he does an interview. It wasn't even an interview. It was more of a statement where the journalist has him on camera. He's sitting there on the scene. You see the fire trucks and everything else. The, the restaurant is just gutted. And you can imagine what most... CEO is what most owners would be doing in that moment you'd be you'd be freaking out you'd be you know pacing around you'd be you know putting your hand on your head you'd be one you know talking to your accountant and your lawyers and all the different things and his interview I think it's about two minutes long the statement that he gives it's unbelievable where he just talks about the fact that, um, you know, he's just glad that everybody was safe and it's not so much about the financial aspect. And, you know, uh, our staff is safe. We want to say thank you to all the, the firefighters and the first responders and everyone who's here. You know, it's been a, it's a tough year for all of us in the restaurant industry. Like he's hitting all these marks and it doesn't sound to me like someone who's going down a script and like ticking boxes of things that you're supposed to say this, this is muscle memory of an ethical, great leader and all of that stuff comes through in this interview. And he says, yeah, you know, we will rebuild. There will be, there, you know, the light will come back from this. And again, he's thanking everyone. To me, that is, you know, most executives, most owners wouldn't be able to pull that interview off in that moment. And then they would complain about their media coverage. And so to me, the best way to avoid having to uh, ask for a correction or having someone who wasn't pleased with the article is just do your homework, do your reps in the gym, so to speak, do practice interviews, get feedback. And they're not all going to be just, you know, you've knocked it out of the park, five star interviews. You know, you will have some that are not as great as others. Dust yourself off, see what you can learn and try it again.
1: Great advice, Warren.
0: I don't know if it's great advice. It feels like I'm just kind of like rambling half the time.
1: (laughs) no i think i think it was i i I think you gave the the right the right approach to each of those situations and you know it's one of these things where there's not not an obvious reference book where you can turn and say oh in this situation here's what you do but i think the the guidance you gave generally gives people a good sense of what how how to evaluate those circumstances well you've dealt with a lot of this
0: you've dealt with this over your career what's your do you have like a basic philosophy of corrections
1: it it aligns with what you're saying it's at first off let's look at the bigger picture and is what's in the story generally correct because most people when they see a story are not going to be parsing every detail they're going to remember after the fact they're going to remember like what was the general theme of that story like yeah. what did, there's maybe one thing that comes from it i liked what they that guy said or that guy seemed like a jerk like it's going to be very very <laughs> um sort of um uh, simple concepts that people are left with left with that's by the same token when you think about spokespeople like I can't tell you a number of times where, where we run into situations where people are spending hours and hours agonizing over quotes and writing the perfect quote and at the end of the day it's very unlikely a spokesperson is going to deliver the quote as it's written on that page so think about it in terms of thematics what are we getting across same thing when it comes to the story what is the thematic of the story is it the right theme And then let's just, if, if, if if that's okay, and there may be some little detail wrong, let's not, you know, um, let's not uh, spend too much time worrying about that, especially because, you know, oftentimes if you're an organization, the journalists that are covering you are ones that are going to cover you again and again in the future. And you only have so many opportunities to go back and, and ask a journalist to fix something because I think they will get tired of listening to you if, if you're asking that too often. And so you know, you have a limited amount of capital in that regard, spend that capital wisely, only use it when you absolutely have to. And, and in most of the situations that I, you know, we're were prompting you with, you really wouldn't necessarily like, like I think you said, like, unless it's, it's a mission critical thing and it's like a life or death situation (laughs) or, you know, capital markets moving thing. Um, chances are it's not something you need to get fixed if the story generally is correct. Yeah. Um, I
0: found that interview, or it's like a fifty eight second clip. Do you want to hear it from that guy? Yeah, okay, hopefully this works. First
1: of all, Mohammed, uh, you must be in shock. I mean, this is one of, this is a very important store for you. Yeah, this store is very important for us all at Paramount. Most importantly, the staff are safe and the support of the community. The fire department and the chief, they've been here for hours. They've done an amazing work. Thank you very much everyone for the messages. You know, it's not about the financial part of it. This store is one of my babies. You know, it put us on the map and it means so much to all of us at Paramount. So, you know, we'll rebuild again. I always say the light will always come. This year has been very difficult for all of us, especially in the restaurant industry. But you know what, to everyone out there, the lights will come for sure. Despite this, my staff are safe, and that's the most important, and the community came together for us. A lot of people are here, and they're showing their support, and for that, I appreciate it.
0: Masterclass.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's a great interview, especially, you know, the the, the general principle of not putting the spotlight on yourself. Yeah. Put it on the people that are important around you in those situations and, and make sure that people see that you have... Their interest first and he, he did that. Like this is going to become part of my deck
0: now. Um, You know, it it wasn't even a back and forth. It was a, it was a one minute statement, not even a minute. And he hit everything, everything that you would want to hit. And, uh, and to me, it doesn't seem like you can tell when a CEO is kind of reading off bullet points or trying to like tick boxes. This seems like a genuine dude who he'd be saying the same things if the cameras were off. And I have to say, I had dinner there. I ordered dinner for me and my kids from there that night because of that interview, I'm like, Jesus, I want to, I want to try to help this guy right. out. And so people say, what's the ROI of a great interview. I would say, I would say that, and obviously has insurance and everything for the restaurant hopefully. But, um, but to me it's so rare, you know, we, we spend most of our time here ripping companies and people because there's so many examples of people doing it poorly and the examples of them really crushing it are so few and far between that I thought I'd want to you know celebrate one and highlight it. And that to me is really how it's done.
1: Can't say it better myself. Anything else you want to add before we wrap it up for this week? No, I think that's uh, that was a good discussion. I enjoyed that one. All right, we'll
0: have to keep uh, keep an eye on Twitter and Google News and see what's going on and uh, who will be in our crosshairs next week. Um, Just to bring it back to hockey before we uh, before we close it off. uh, (laughs) Now that our prediction is, it's impossible for our prediction to come true of the Leafs. Who do you think is going to actually win the Stanley Cup this year?
1: So in watching some of the West, West coast teams, I don't know what you, but well, not that not that Colorado is on the West coast, but it's in the Western side of yeah. the country. Like when they, when you watch them play hockey, it's like they're playing at a different level than, than some of the games I was watching in the East. So I can't, I don't know. I, I'm looking at them, I'm looking at Tampa. That would be like a clash of Titans uh, in the final. Um, but I'd probably go with Colorado. Really? Huh so well, what's, what's will
0: uh, I don't know I just I uh I guess after after Toronto my my the team I feel an in infinity for is probably Vegas for for some mm. reason you know I just went to the I was at their opening game a whole bunch of us went down there you know my dad and a bunch of his buddies and uh, one of my sisters it was just a really cool and the, what they did that year this kind of ragtag team of kind of third line guys who, you know, made a serious run for the Stanley cup was, uh, was kind of cool, but like that, they don't seem to be firing at all cylinders right now. So I don't know. As long as Montreal doesn't win, I'll be pretty happy. I can agree there completely. I don't want to alienate any listeners, but man, I'm not, uh, not a fan. Although to see that guy get crushed the other night was terrible. That was, that was really ugly to watch. What, what's your thought on the hit? Not that again, we should probably just spin this off into a hockey podcast, but the, the Shifley hit, what do you, what do you think of that? Well,
1: I didn't like it because it was obvious he'd already scored. And I know the players will say, "Oh, it's all happening so fast," and blah 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 blah. Like if he was, re- if he really just wanted to stop from scoring, he could have used a stick to try and knock the puck away or something. But instead, he was like <laughs> lining him up for to take him out, and I think it was more just being pissed off than it was an actual hockey play. So I didn't like it for that reason. And I think I saw he got suspended for four games, which is more than some people thought, yeah. but uh, I'm not too disappointed to see that. Like, cause cause at the end of the day, like these are coworkers, even though they're on different teams, they're part of the same union. And when you're, when you're, you know, delivering those kinds of checks to people who could be you the next week, I don't know. It just, it just doesn't seem like it's a, it's the right thing. It's sickening to see, uh, you know, the,
0: the way he like he was out before he hit the ground. It just makes you, it yeah. makes your stomach feel sick. And he's had concussion issues before. I understand.
1: Oh, really? Oh, I don't think so. More reason to be concerned.
0: Then, but um, you know, the dilemma is you have this, you know, a star player on the other team, and so that's almost guaranteed that Montreal is going to win the series now.
1: Well, we'll see. Who knows, right? But, but um, this, y- yeah, well, and that's the other thing too, right? If you are the if you are the leader of that team, like think about your team first right does it, it, it was that was that a smart play then yeah so Unfortunate. anyway it, it'd be interesting to watch um, it, but uh, if, if if for some reason Montreal does make it through it goes down to the US into that final final four you think they're gonna uh, get smoked they're gonna get ground up ground up pretty quickly Harry Price is playing out of his head though I know that only gets you so far when the rest <laughs> of your team is sort of okay
0: Famous last words. We might be replaying this as they plan their
1: parade. <laughs> like I said, you get what you pay for.
0: <laughs> and on that note, we'll wrap it up. Great chat and uh, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Warren. You too.
1: Thanks for stopping by. If you liked this episode, please rate, review, or recommend the show. See you next time.